Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and this week's episode is one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. My friend Leila Buzuba is with me here. She's a statistical programmer at Sylvester Cancer Center in Miami. And you might remember her from being one of the first episodes on DataFem season one. And now we're here Femme, to have a conversation with Dr. Sophia Noble, who is, as many of you know, the author of Algorithms of Oppression, which is a wonderful book talking about all sorts of racial bias that we can see in current search engines, algorithmic models, and the whole data science industry at large, along with insights as to how we can eradicate this bias in our work and our lives. So without further ado, I'm bringing you this amazing episode of DataFem. I know you will enjoy and feel free, as always, to interact with me on Twitter at Data. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we could just get started hearing a bit about how you got into this whole algorithms business. So I've always kind of had a, a bit of like, um, you know, an, an eye open for the injustices because that they, you know, I come from a community of people, you know, I'm working class. I mean, the unfairness of life for all of us, I'm sure, becomes really apparent pretty quickly. And by the time I was on the internet, and of course, you know, I got on the internet a very long time ago and uh, watched the progress of the web. And by the time I went to graduate school, you know, people were talking about the internet and search engines and platforms. Like they were, they were just like these ama amazing democratic spaces. And I had the good fortune of being able to think about those things inside the space of graduate school which is already a place where you're going to interrogate a lot of things. And I just, I just happened to, you know, to notice things that I think other people were writing about, but didn't really um, take up in the same way, you know, while they were critical of technology, they weren't really thinking about the specific implications for women or the specific Im implications for women of color. And uh, so that was, that was the place that I noticed the most and started writing about. That's awesome to hear. Actually, Layla was the person who introduced me to your work because she had posted on Twitter about the book. And then I started listening, as you know, on Audible. And so it's really cool to have both of us here since um, we are big fans. Yeah, so I've always been really interested in the um, the way kind of like what's going on behind the curtains in, in regards to algorithms. Danielle and myself were both data scientists and a lot of times we just kind of accept uh, how models work out of the box. And, and, and there are a lot of models that are just deemed as black box models because you don't really know what's what's happening in them. You know, you kind of you throw some data in and then some um, 
a model gets popped out. And uh, I've always been one to kind of question everything. And, and that's how, uh, in, light of, in, uh, in light of the current social climate, um, where, is where I decided to say, hey, you know, I, I got to do a little bit more research on this um, and kind of question the implications, as you mentioned, um, and just a, a very quick search on Amazon brought me directly to your book. One of my first questions that I wanted to ask you was uh, specifically for the listeners of this podcast who have not read this book or who are not familiar, what can they expect from algorithms of oppression? Oh man, that is such a great question because I engage with a lot of different people who come from different fields and backgrounds who read it and they take away very different things. So let me just say that I wrote this book in a very um, Black feminist tradition, which means, um, you know, many Black feminists, you know, uh, Patricia Hill Collins in particular, I think of, I, I remember when I read, first read her book, Black Feminist Thought, I read it when it came out in the early 90s. And um she, there was a line that was almost probably like a throwaway line for her. She might not even remember she said this, but she said something to the effect of, I could not write a book that Black women could not read. And, you know, it was really kind of a, a you know, a clap back to the way academia forces Black women in particular to speak and perform our scholarship in a way that alienates us from our own writing and also alienates our own community, right? That, you know, using obtuse language, um, speaking in a register that presumes a lot of knowledge already um, prior to being able to even pick up into the conversation. And I always felt that, you know, uh, academia, even when I was like an undergrad, had that kind of a quality for me too, of just alienating me from even my own lived experience and, uh, you know, people writing about black people in a way that didn't feel right, or people writing about working class people, um, writing about first generation, um, college students. So the first thing that you will probably take away from this book is the style and the, um, accessibility, or at least the, the desire that I had to, write it in an accessible way. Um, a lot of people comment that they feel that they can kind of just get right into the conversations that I'm trying to raise. And, you know, the second thing is I think um, the book is designed to kind of take you through a lot of different cases and examples and evidence of something's wrong here. And, you know, part of that impulse that I had as well in, in writing the book was that people don't believe black women. You know, they don't believe us when we tell them that racism and sexism are profoundly impacting us or that we're experiencing systems inequitably. You know, this is why people like Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, the brilliant legal scholar kind of um, helping us understand this term she coined along with many others, um, of intersectionality, which is that systems have a disparate impact upon us based on where we are kind of classified or located in those systems. We have to provide a preponderance of evidence, evidence 
We have to provide more evidence than really is probably necessary to make the case. So in that way, I think the book is just trying to say that like unequivocally, you have to contend with the way in which multinational internet platforms have a disparate impact on people of color. And really the book was not intended just to be about black women and girls. I mean, that's kind of the opening in order to lead you into the conversation. But really there's the implications of the work I think, and the book are about, um, you know, what does it mean for us to lose our public information needs to cede those to large advertising platforms from Google to Facebook uh, and, and, and those to platforms to come. Um, what does it mean to lose control over truth and the, the possibility of accessing evidence and truth? And um, what does it mean when these systems kind of flatten all kinds of content and information and knowledge such that it becomes really difficult to tell fact from fiction. And, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I'll just say that, um, uh, so I think those are the kinds of things you can take away from the book. It's like, you know, if you're interested in any of those kinds of things, this book will be for you. Um, of course, I wrote it also for librarians because uh, I have a PhD in library and information science and a master's in library and information science. I have never been a practicing librarian, but I train people who want to go into um, information fields as a professor at UCLA. And uh, I think that people who do any kind of knowledge or information work will also take a lot away from this book. I was wondering about the library science, if that would come up, because I definitely heard that mentioned a lot in your book, that um, library science, information science, those are both like methods of classification, I guess. Yeah, you know, listen, this is the thing that a lot of people forget. I mean... All right, so there's a feminist kind of science and technology, critical information studies, um, education happening in this book. So one of the things that I'm trying to help people understand is that the politics of what of how information is organized, whether it's in 2020 in a commercial search engine like Google or whether it's in the 20th century in a library, that the logics that undergird classification systems are actually the same. And what a lot of people don't understand about the rise of the commercial search engine, Google in particular, is that they used the kind of citation analytics that come out of the field of library and information science. Um, so I try to do a little bit of history so people can see that nothing is new under the sun, so to speak, that these logics are um, have always been contested. Whose knowledge gets to be saved? Whose knowledge gets to be promoted? Why do we know the things we know? Well, what is the role of information gatekeepers since the beginning, at least of the written word, been? In many, many societies around the world, why should we care about who gets included and, and whose books don't even get to be printed and published, let alone preserved and, um, and made prominent? So, um, you know, these things actually dovetail quite nicely when you think about the kind of great men of history that always kind of center European 
um, men, um, white American men, um, because knowledge and information gatekeepers also canonize these people. I mean, we're, we're, the, we literally call it a canon in the academy. You know, if you think about like, I, it's like you're a saint. Um, so that is really important. The, the understanding the history of classification and knowledge classification, information classification, what gets saved, what gets made visible, what becomes invisible, because those things shape the entire world. They structure our ability to even know ourselves and they are deeply, profoundly implicated in social, economic, racial justice and injustice. And um, so that's why I kind of really had that chapter for the librarians, mostly so that they would know that their work is political. They are not um, apolitical brokers of knowledge. All books are not the same. All knowledge is not the same. All voices are not the same. Um, it's not a kind of, it's not random and they have a responsibility to make sure that people who have historically been marginalized, people whose voices are not heard and people who have been deeply misrepresented, profoundly misrepresented in the history of racist and sexist scholarship, um, that maybe that maybe that we can like remove those ideas from the canon, or maybe we can be aware that, um, those those ideas are do something in our society. And of course, the modern day search engine is really predicated upon a whole history of those logics. And Google just happened to be the monopoly leader as I was doing the research on the book. But, you know, any big commercial search engine could have been the subject of the book if they had been the leader. It's nice to hear that, you know, in, in the information sciences that People who are typically mar marginalized and um, who voices, whose voices are not heard have an opportunity um, in the library systems with the search engines such as Google or Yahoo, um, the privatized companies. It's kind of important to remember, to be mindful of the perspective, um, who's, who is behind uh actually determining how it gets indexed, right? It, it's just, the search engine is just an indexing. Um, it's just indexing that is quote unquote smart. Um, but at the end of the day is still created by, by man and uh, emphasis on man. And, um, and with their personal bias, whether it is unconscious or conscious um, in mind, like the in, it's in play. So um, I, I appreciate that you brought that up and uh, it's like you just read my mind. I think your whole book is a library, technically, because of how many people that you cite. The whole book is a library in and of itself. Like you, you bring all these thought leaders, some of whom are definitely marginalized or from marginalized groups at least you know um and you quote them and that gives them visibility and it also enhances the point you're making obviously but you know i've definitely noticed that so when you did bring up the librarians it kind of felt like the whole time that i was sitting in a library you know with all these sources in front of me you know hearing about um the topics 
that you're discussing, which kind of brings me back to something you said earlier, which was that hearing your hearing your dialogue and your explanations that are very straightforward makes people feel more comfortable about talking about topics that might have been too uncomfortable, quote unquote, I'm making air quotes, you don't see me, but, um, you know, to talk about in, you know, any kind of public setting or discourse. For example, for me, you know, I have a lot of friends who are practicing Jewish, you know, they like they, they are very religious. And I feel comfortable saying like, did you know that you know, people in your family and your past might have been referred to as, quote unquote, the Jewish question, like not a person, <laughs> like a whole group of people referred to as a question, you know, and that seems like it would be heinous. I, I didn't know that, you know, and like I had no idea that a whole group of people um, was being referred to that way. And you mentioned like a lot of groups that you know, it takes actual political action to reclassify those terms um, because, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm getting all passionate over here, but it's it's just, it's true. I think that what your book has done so well, almost like without being obvious that it's doing that until you obviously said that that was your intention when writing it is like making those uncomfortable quote unquote conversations something that I feel backed up bringing up, like, you know, the sexualization of brown and black women and girls, girls, you know, and these things that we're hearing about that are so horrible that we would often shy away from bringing it up. But no, it has to be talked about. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that there's a little bit of love for doing that. Um, because, uh, you know, my son takes a lot of offense to the fact that when he and his friends go on Amazon and look at my book, that the very first um, review is someone who gave the book one star because all I did was cite other people. <laughs> and He's really upset about it. And I'm like, and it's funny to me because the algorithm keeps that one horrible review of my book pinned to the top and all the other like stellar reviews come after that. And you may not even see, you may not even scroll past this guy who wrote it, I'm assuming. And he, you know, um, he's like, you know, all she does is cite other people. So she really doesn't have anything to say herself. And um, of course, you know, the, that's the opposite of what I think I'm trying to do, um, which is, first of all, I'm an academic and it is an academic book and it's on an academic press. And so one of the things you do when you're a scholar um, is you acknowledge and situate your own ideas in, in the context of other people's ideas, right? I mean, in the scholarly tradition, what we do is we argue with other scholars by writing books at them. You know what I mean? So it's like the whole thing in a university is people debating ideas and we write articles and we do art and we write books and we do things to like speak back to somebody else or some group of people, right. That we disagree with or that we agree with. And so, um, so I'm trying to do scholarship, which is fundamentally do doing that you know, we should all be suspect of anyone who writes something and they never give credit to anyone else for where they 
where their ideas are kind of um, germinating and how they're, how they're, you know, how they have flowered from the, the sun, you know, the wind, the rain, um, you know, the, the nutrient that has helped um, grow those ideas. So, uh, you know, because we are all in dialogue and we're all interdependent. And so I, I am specifically trying to cite women, people of color, LGBTQ scholars, um, first generation scholars that I, you know, people I know, people I don't know, um, people from outside the United States too, because I think we have a practice of pointing out to other people and um, again, helping people pull on these threads of ideas. So when there's, you know, an idea that I have read um, or been exposed to, I've tried to engage with it in the text and, um, and, and signal so other people can go read it for themselves. Maybe they'll draw different conclusions. So I think that's very, very important. The other part is it's just kind of like the, um, <laughs> there's like a meta citational um, practice that's happening, which is the book is about these um, citation analytic uh, politics that are search engines. Okay. Search engines basically derive their logic from, um, you know, or, or hypertextual kind of, um, search where you look to see which websites are, you know, are being pointed to. And that gives you that, you know, the, um, uh, algorithm kind of has a way of weighting, the legitimacy of a website, let's say, because a lot of people are pointing out to that website, right? So this is like early search. That is predicated upon a library science practice and a um, scholarly practice of citational politics, which means if um, if you write, uh, you know, an article and you cite Noble 2018, um, you're sending a signal and that's giving some type of credibility to Noble comma 2018. And so by citing it, you recognize that it it matters in some way, um, either to argue with or to agree with or something else. And so so that is one thing that's happening. So so the book is about categorization, the logics of citational practice, which are the logics of search engines, which is about a politics of recognizing or not recognizing or misrecognizing people, communities, ideas. And I'm also in the book trying to do that very thing, which is I'm trying to signal to other voices that get erased. In response to the reviewer uh, of your book, I, being in ac academia myself, I was, my response in my head was this person clearly doesn't know what it's like to be in academia because that's that's really how you communicate. As you said, you 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 cite other people's work uh, and then include your own position on this topic. Not only are you obviously going to give credit where credit's due by giving a citation, but you are also doing a service to your reader because what happens is, as I read your book, as uh, somebody who's interested, I took the initiative to purchase your book to get informed about a particular subject matter. As I read, I notice, hmm, maybe this wasn't uh, very 
um, clear to me this point, but I notice that you have a citation next to the comment, like you have the number 64 or something like this, I will go and find it and then I will learn more about that particular subject. So you're really doing a service um, to your readers, to the librarians, to the particular audience that this book was intended for to broaden their, their knowledge base, not only on what you have to say, but what others have to say as well. And by including those outside voices, whether they come from um, outside the U.S. or marginalized voices, that I think is an even greater magnitude of service that you're doing. Yeah, it was very, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm sure, you know, anybody who is a writer knows that, um, you know, it's so subjective and people, you know, they like your song or they don't. And, uh, yeah, so it, you know, writing the book was really, um, it was a challenge. In fact, there are things that I have done, um, when I, before the book came out in my first year as an assistant professor at the university of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I was asked to do one of these like TEDx talks, you know, these like campus level talks and, uh, they wanted me to talk about my research. And of course, you only have about seven to 10 minutes or something, right? This was early on in my assistant professor career, like in my academic career. I, I had had a long history like and career in corporate America where I was very used to presenting like, you know, the deck and walking a client through the deck and, you know, here's all the ideas and it's high level and then they get in the minutia. But as a, after I had been trained as a scholar, I was, um, I, you know, all of the like speaking at a top line and not giving all this kind of citational practice and credit to someone and, you know, to the many people was really, um, like, like that was trained into me. And so when I had to do this TED talk, which horrif it horrifies me that people assign this like to their students and stuff, I'm like, how do I take it down off the internet? I was so, so destroyed. I, I mean, I, I went home and I was physically ill because I was just starting out as a professor and I had to give this talk and it wasn't like a scholarly talk where I have 45 minutes. And again, I can super situate and cite and locate and be very specific and granular. I was giving this like a seven to 10 minute talk about my work and I couldn't, there was no space or time to cite anybody. And I remember thinking this is going to be the end of my career someone's going to see that I gave this talk and I didn't give credit where credit was due. And I'm like, that's it as an assistant professor. And now it's over. And I just remember like, so can you imagine, I mean, that just, it makes me laugh now to think of, of like how kind of fragile I was in that way. And more so that I was stressed about, um, you know, honoring the people, the others, the other people. So I'm really grateful now that to be in a position in my career where I get to, um, first of all, I've gotten to know so many of the people that I cited in my work and that's been a thrill, but also, um, you know, I get to kind of ease up and, uh, have a little bit more, um, ease with this work. And, and, and let me just say part of the reason why these things were so stressful eight years ago at the time that I wrote my dissertation, which I finished in 2012, I started it in 2010. When I would say to people, you know, race, 
and gender are like embedded at the level of code. And then there are like ideologies that get structured into the way people code systems and build systems. People would um, deride me. I mean, I remember once presenting my work at a conference in Europe. I was the only black person in the room and I presented my research findings. I was still a doc student. I hadn't fit quite finished my dissertation yet. And a very senior um, man stood up and said to me, how dare you question the systems and the technology? It is just code. Um, code is just math. Math cannot be racist. Maybe your findings are that black women just do more porn. And, you know, he really tried to humiliate me in front of like 300 people and it was just awful. And so, you know, one of the things that has made it easier to talk about my work over the years is that now a whole field of kind of critical algorithmic studies, feminist, AI, this beautiful podcast, you know, all of this has kind of grown up over the last decade. But in the early years when I was just starting um, there was a lot of um, uh, disbelief that the things that I was alleging were even um, possible. And now the very people, weirdly, who, um, you know, said that there's no such thing as algorithmic discrimination, that these were just a matter of how users use the tools incorrectly. Um, you know, now there's, you know, people are making $100 million gifts to Stanford and MIT and all the places that said that kind of thing couldn't happen. So, you know, here we are. Wow. Well, I'm really, really pissed that that happened to you. I feel like, and don't feel like you have to say anything about this, but I feel like, you know, what really upsets me about what people have said to you about only quoting others is that there are moments within the book where you have shared some very personal details about things that have happened to you. And at first I was surprised. I was like, whoa, you know, that is a lot of vulnerability, you know, to just kind of intersperse into a paragraph about research. And I thought it was brilliant. And I had to go back and listen a few times every time you talk about your own experience, just to make sure like, wait, she's saying this really happened to her. This really, you know, um, it reminds me of like, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and whenever like the host says that they were like stalked or followed, you know, I'm just like, oh, whoa, really? You know, it's like makes it so much more personal. So I guess I feel I don't know if that made any sense, but I guess I feel like especially confused, angered by the fact that somebody would say that you only quoted other people when you have dropped a lot of like personal gems and narratives in there. I don't know. I, I think there's a, a misnomer that all that in order to do good research, we have to be completely detached, objective, um, you know, disconnected, um, right? In order for like our work to be valid, or um, you know, and I had I had, for example, you know, people when I was a student who would say you know, you can't study this or use these kinds of examples because you're a black woman and no one will find your work credible if you write about black women and girls, you know? And I was like, so wait a minute, you're telling me black women and girls never get to write about black women and girls because now all of a sudden that's suspect, but white men write about 
you know, white American society all day long and history. And, you know, like no one even, even begins to question that. Like that is insane. There's no way you're going to convince me of that. But, you know, those kinds of things were said to me. Um, I can remember, a, you know, now that I have tenure, I feel like I can just like put all my receipts out on the table. Um, and I do that, you know, part of why I do that in the book and why I try to do that, you know, in our conversation and some of my talks is because I think that women of color in academia and in corporate America often experience a tremendous amount of like microaggressing, aggression, harm, um, and we think we're the only ones experiencing it and um, we're not. And part of what we need to do is make visible the way in which we're harmed in these spaces so that it is unacceptable to continue to do that, to, to abuse us in these ways. You know, so I had a person who told me um, that uh, in essence, you know, my work was terrible. I'd be lucky if I got a job. And if I got a job, I should hold on to it. And I should immediately change my research agenda. Because if I tried to turn my dissertation into a book, which of course is what algorithms of oppression is, um, I would basically be laughed out of academia. I mean, to say that to a person is just, you know, not everything and not every thought should be uttered. Do you know? <laughs> So, um, like, okay. I mean, I'm not sure. So I have to tell you like those kinds of traumas while writing the book made it so that, um, you know, sometimes I just, you know, I'm really, um, taken aback that people cared about this book and that they were interested in it and that they read it. And I'm, you know, I'm always with every invitation to a podcast or to anything I, um, in a very personal way, I will say that I'm extremely grateful and I try to take every opportunity that I can just to acknowledge back the people who are acknowledging me because there has been a fair amount of people who, um, who did not do that. It's funny. Like when I posted about this, one of my best friends who unfortunately had to move from new Orleans wrote back and said that she fought to get your book into the um, New Orleans public library system. So she was like, oh, I'm going to laugh if you became obsessed with this book through the public library, because that was me. I was just like, you know, I wish that was it. It wasn't. But like, I, you know, that's uh, people. It's like a cult favorite at this point, like The Shining. Like it's, you know, oh people God. are just <laughs> people, <laughs> people rile up around. And, you know, I, I definitely... I think even though like I'm I see you as this like you know reigning like of us deity over like our whole kind of um, <laughs> even though I see it that way I also feel like no matter where we are I feel like it's natural and it's natural to um like lift each other up and share the space because unfortunately when one of us gets a voice we don't know when that'll happen again I, I hate to say that like but it's so true and so you know I see Layla doing that in all of her events you know I definitely I definitely just feel like that's my calling every day to get up is to use the platform that I have 
to, you know, just make make it all of our platform because like when anyone from a marginalized group, queer, you know, black indigenous people of color, even just like all around like female non-binary still isn't equal to, you know, um, where white males are. And I just feel like it is for somebody to question that motivation is hurtful because it's almost just like, then give us more slots so that we don't feel that way. So that we don't feel like the second one of us gets a bone, we have to just split it all up because it's, it's like, you know, (laughs) you want the next person to give you that chance because there's so, it feels like there's just so little space to go around for anybody that's had to fight their way up to the table, you know? Yeah. I I find that that's almost contradictory uh, to your whole ideal right now in the book, because you're, it's almost as if they're asking you to control how the topic is perceived and how and not allow them to perceive it how they they do on their own and their own liberty so that that's very contradictory to me i mean god that's so beautifully put and i felt a lot of pressure on this book in particular because i knew how much resistance i had experienced as a grad student writing it and um and you know there certainly were people who were supportive in fact um you know, the most supportive people were the black women um, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign who were like my, you know, mentors, one of whom was on my committee, Dr. Sharon Tedega, um, you know, people who were outside my field, you know, that got it and were like, you got to do this work and we support you. And they mentored me and they did the things that are actually um, invaluable, like, you know, taught me how to write the cover letter to apply for an academic job and how to do things that are really, um, not transparent parts of the university when you're a doctoral student. And so you're right. I mean, I felt a lot of pressure, um, on this book. First of all, there's only probably a couple of dozen black PhDs in library and information science in the United States. So that's a lot of pressure to then you're doing like a thing that's about and centering black women and black feminism and critical race theory, which is at the time, again, was not popular. The only other person I ever knew in the field of LIS who had ever written a dissertation using critical race theory was Dr. Andre Brock who's at Georgia Tech now and who wrote this amazing book called Distributed Blackness that just came out. He was the first person to academically study black Twitter. You know, he was my boy. Um, he had also graduated from Illinois uh, a few years ahead of me and had kind of reached back for me. And it was because of him that I felt the courage to center these ways of knowing and these kind of research methods and theories Um in a program where, you know, there had been 12 black people in a hundred years to get a PhD from there. Right. So, um, it was a lot and, uh, and a lot was writing on it. Just like you say, it's like, you know, got, I got this one shot 
I got this fellowship to go to grad school. Um, I look around and I, I'm the only one like me and I got a really like, I can't blow it. You know, it's like, I'm really glad to be able to kind of talk a little bit. I, you know, most times when I'm on a podcast, people want to talk about like the themes of the book. This is kind of one of the first times I've really talked about the making of the book in this way. Um, so please don't ask me any more secrets because I feel like somehow you're getting me <laughs> to tell all the business, so to speak, of like um, this process. And uh, But I do think it's important on another level for people to know because it seems like people just do a thing. And, you know, I look at people like my colleague, um, Ruha Benjamin, who wrote this amazing book, Race After Technology, that came out last year and um, yeah, she's a prolific speaker and I really, really admire her and uh, she makes it seem so easy and her writing just seems like effortless. And, you know, she just like sat down one afternoon and wrote this book and, and then to hear her speak about it is just really exquisite. And, um, you know, it just looks so easy. And I'm sure that she also has stories about the making of her career but, you know, people, you all you see is kind of the finished, so to speak, person or project. And, um, you know, I think we have to make more transparent the um, institutional barriers, the systemic inequality, um, the career suppression that I have experienced, certainly. Um, so that when people, other people experience it, when other women of color experience it, other LGBTQ um, faculty and students experience it. They don't think it, that it's just happening to just them. You know, I can't even read the book because I, I see all of its flaws, you know, and all the things I wish I could have done better. And, um, uh, at the same time, I'm really, you know, glad that we now are starting to have whole fields emerge. And, uh, and I'm just glad to, you know, like, see more and more people like the two of you be invested in these conversations and you have so many more skills and, you know, than I do. Um, and it allows for us to not have to like fight over that one bone. You know, it's just like, we all show up like a girl gang. I don't know. And then we like, you know, change it up. That's, that's what I want. I love that. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm listening to you uh, as we give you rounds of accolades you know, say, oh my God, stop, you know, just, you know, own it, own it. It's, it's actually, you know, you are, um, you are a voice. You're using your position right now as a tenured professor to shed light on a topic that is, um, needs, needs to be talked about. Um, it has been long overdue and, um, it's amazing. It, it's, it's really amazing. And, um, lot, you know, I, I want to segue into um, a little bit of the more uh, specific topics from the book, but I, I just want to conclude with um, thanking you for sharing some of your personal um, stories in the making of algorithms of oppression and, you know, also just commenting on the fact that, you know, to the person that said, you know, math can't be racist. Well, you know, it's this is in a this is science you know if if we were to just accept everything as truth and uh not question then we would still be probably somewhere in the 19th century 
you know, this is how modern physics has evolved, how modern mathematics has been evolved, how every subject in science has been evolved. And you must question everything. That is that is probably the motto I say the most <laughs> is question everything. Um, so with that, I, I do want to ask um, a question on um, some of your suggestions uh, on how we can make progress, how we can take steps towards uh, ending racial bias in AI. You said that these kind of algorithms that are using search engines are, are shifting social systems, specifically financial, political, social systems. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that? And do you have some kind of proposed solutions? Do you think that you know, stricter, stricter regulation would work or more awareness and education? My feeling these days, uh, more than ever, I, you know, is we need to all be connected. We need to be linking up, strengthening our conversations. I mean, you asked me a question about like, where are the sites of intervention? And I think that, you know, part of it is, of course, we need a stronger regulatory framework. We need you know, there are some things that technologies that probably shouldn't even come into existence because the implications of them are so profound that you cannot call them back. Um, so, you know, we see this right now where there's, um, you know, moratorium on facial recognition. You know, some of us might have said a technology like that should have never been made in the first place. And how did it even get approved? And one of the challenges in the tech sector is that, you know, unlike other sectors, um, you know, people just make things and put it out into the marketplace or go sell it to, you know, um, people who would weaponize it against vulnerable people, poor people, people who can't, um, who have no rights and no ability and no capital to fight back. Um, so of course we have got to get a handle on some of the, these things in, in like the legal policy frameworks. I don't think that's the only domain. I mean, for sure, we also need, what you know what we see in the Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft workers, the data scientists, the technologists, the software engineers um, who are like, I'm not going to use my skills in service of dangerous technologies like that are, I'm not bringing these things into existence or I, I refuse um, and who are walking out and um, protesting those things. And I think they play you know people with the knowledge of the makers, at the level of decision-making there are incredibly, incredibly important and powerful people. So people like yourselves, you know, who are really deeply embedded in data science communities um, and helping data scientists and computer engineers really understand the politics of their work. Um, and of course, you know, that would extend into the whole pipeline of education and how one is trained up in these fields. And, you know, this is, of course, the lane I'm in as a scholar and as a professor is thinking about how do we center um, the most vulnerable in our conversations about technology design and implementation, because that would help us completely reframe the choices that we make and the investments that we make. So, you know, I think there's a... Um, you know, there's a whole ecosystem. I mean, I, I, I really think the artists and, um, you know, people who uh, love um, to make culture and who are culture makers, you know, again, I think of the two of you with this podcast, um, places and spaces to reimagine and imagine things differently differently. 
Um, you know, we have so much anti-democratic authoritarian technology, surveillance technology, structuring so many domains of the public sphere anymore that we really uh, cannot afford to let AI and algorithms over-determine from, you know, I don't know, what you did from zero to five and all the ways in which your parents characterized you on social media and all of the test scores and, and ways that you were surveilled in K through 12 through all your learning management systems, then spit out a probability of your um, likelihood to be successful in college or whether you should be allowed to live in a certain zip code. I mean, these things are not really out of the realm. This, these things are happening in the world and they're being kind of beta tested on the most poor and vulnerable, on refugees, on poor people, on kids in foster care. You know, think about Virginia Eubanks' work and um, others. So for sure, um, Kathy O'Neill, you know, her great book, Weapons of Math Destruction. So I think these interventions have to be multifaceted and they should be conversations we're having at the dinner table with our, our families they should be. Um, they should move into the realm of uh, Hollywood, you know, policymaking, um, and you know, uh, certainly among the data scientists themselves. And uh, so, I'm just, you know, there isn't a silver bullet. I reject the kind of technocratic um, paradigm, which is that there is just like a solution or an app for that or uh, an algorithm to fix it. There isn't. We're making the world we want to make. And we have a very small sector of the society that's making a world that is increasingly dangerous and damaging to the other 99%. And I, and I worry about those things. You know, I sit here in California in Los Angeles and I'll just say, you know, in closing that, um, I work for the UC system and, uh, you know, we're struggling with trying to figure out how we're going to, you know, bring students back in the, in the midst of a pandemic. We have, um, you know, a really, we have no national healthcare system. We have so many people who don't have, uh, who just don't have in LA and in California and the U S and, and, and here we are in California with the, most well-capitalized companies on planet earth who don't pay taxes into the system. And so the public education, the public higher education systems, the public health care systems, you know, incredibly vulnerable, under-resourced, um, while, you know, billionaires cherry pick pet projects um, and social experiments that they want to get behind or not. And I just find that incredibly immoral and inappropriate. And I'm hoping that the pandemic, while everybody's at home listening to this fine um, nonsense that we're all doing here, um, you know, that they're thinking about the kind of world we want to kind of reemerge back into. And uh, the election will be incredibly important in uh determining some of that it's hard to like 
push forward your career because you definitely want to have that spot where you can like stand up in front of all these men and be like, these are the women making change. You know, I'm just one. There's many, you know, but then it's like, it's hard to make those trade-offs. No one needs to go be a programmer for Stormfront or for Stephen Miller or for the Klan. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like there are, there are limits or like Coke industries. At the same time, I think, okay, I worked in corporate America for 15 years. So yeah, I made my living working on, you know, all kinds of brands and products and services. You know, well, my own philosophy has been to try to take as many of the invitations as possible to push the limits and to normalize new normals, let's say, and I, I know that's a terrible word, but just like to legitimate these critical and feminist approaches. People always ask me, like my son asked me this morning, he goes, mom, has Google ever called you and offered you a job? And I, I started laughing. He's nine. I don't know where he comes up with these things. And I was like, no, I don't think that's going to happen, babe. And um, he's, He's like, but, you know, they should hire somebody like you. And see, they actually should hire people like you. Probably help having worked at a search company, though, a big one for a minute, would give you some insight into building an alternative. I don't know. I'm, that's my guess. So, you know, I don't know. If you guys figure out the, the, the answer on that, I feel like now I have to reach for gummy bears because I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I'm all the way off on that. But I, I do feel like... There has to be some inside outside work with a lot of different kinds of systems. I mean, most people hate politics, but that doesn't mean we don't need public policy. I agree with you wholeheartedly, um, Dr. Noble, because you do have to kind of take those opportunities in order to and try and force change. It, it, it takes an instigator. Uh, shortly after George Floyd's death and when Obama went on YouTube Live, he almost recommended that we need to go and make our leaders a, a bit uncomfortable because that's how you're going to instigate change, right? And if you're not put in that position, then nothing is going to happen. I really respected that a lot. And, it is, and it's very true, you know, um, Danielle, as you as well, you know, in, in our field, there are you know, there's just a lot of injustices happening and it takes being in that position sometimes to say, hey, this is wrong and, and start something that uh, would and you would hope um, be remedied. Um, so with that, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned um, that, you know, software engineers, data scientists and major tech companies such as Facebook and Google have walked out because they do not want to be propagators of a system, of an algorithm that um, that enables this sort of uh, injustice, that enables the, the behaviors that um, further widens that gap between um, vulnerable populations. Um, and so, as a, as a data scientist, I often ask myself, you know, I only possess a certain set of skills. I'm not what one would consider a huge activist. You know, I'm not on social media every day. I'm not super vocal. I'm not out on the streets raising my like hands up in the air. That's not me. 
but I, I want to do as much as I can with the skills that I have. Um, but sometimes I feel like it's not enough. Um, what do you think others or people such as myself, data scientists, but um, others in their position, so that work in tech, what can they do to become allies of these marginalized um, populations? You know, I really appreciate you bringing this into the conversation. And, you know, the first flash that came to me listening to you was thinking about we are all interconnected. You know, we're all in different lanes of expertise and power. And uh, there's a role for scholars to play. There's a role for people in corporate America to play. There's a role for um, parents who stay at home and raise kids. There are people who do service work that, you know, we're so grateful for. Um, there are all kinds of people in this world. And I think that um, our job is to try to link up with each other and um, demand different new realities, the kinds of realities and for the kind of world we want to live in, the multiracial democracy that is socially and economically and racially just, right? That's the world I want to live in. Um, I think that it's a misnomer for us to think that social movement and social change happens only in the streets. it We need the streets to help raise the temperature, but also, um, you know, there are many people who can raise the temperature so that we can do our work in a new environment. And I guess I think that's... Um, that's the thing I would say to people who see themselves as like apolitical or as not knowing how to be meaningful. I don't think you're an ally. I don't think I you may characterize yourself as an ally, you know, but maybe you could also think of yourself as, um, you know, moving your grain of sand on the beach. And, you know, we're all we're all moving a piece of the change that we want to see in the world forward. And I don't want to reduce that to saying like only the special people, only certain people are able to do that. And the rest of us are bystanders and watchers looking on. Um, people are doing different things. And that's why we have to be well-informed, well-educated, and understand that our work matters. It's meaningful. It's political. And understand the implications of it. And um, and then decide whether we want to keep doing that or do something different. I know that uh, several people in my position feel very similarly. You know, they have families, they have, um, they see everything that's happening on the streets and all of the injustices and, and, and uh, what is happening on social media and saying, well, I just feel like I'm, I'm being a bystander. The metaphor that you just made about being grains in the sand, I think that was um, that was a perfect representation of how how we all play a role. What I what I do want to follow up with in your book, there are a lot of references. We we discussed about citations. There are a lot of references to multiple uh, sources. However, I did notice that you know you did publish your book in twenty eighteen. But a lot of your, your citations and your resources are 
um, from, you know, 2013, maybe 2012, um, 2014. And I know that this came out of your dissertation. Have you seen or do you know of any changes that have come about in search engines such as Google? And um, do you view that as, you know, a step in the right direction or just very um, indifferent about it? You know, I'm sure that uh, the book that I wrote, the books that others write, um, are often just kind of treated like a big book of tickets that get opened up, <laughs> like, go go fix these things. Um, you know, so sure, there are a lot of things that are different um, and some satisfactory and some unsatisfactory changes. Um, you know, I think that the underlying logics of search as a kind of a, a large scale advertising platform where there's a 24 by seven live auction, uh, you know, of optimizing keywords means that it's a dynamic environment and at different times, um, some things are foregrounded. You might have, you might remember in the book I had, for example, three black teenagers, uh, an image search, and how that brought back these kind of like, you know, uh, it was an example from that was taken from the headlines of, of a, a teenager on the East Coast who had captured this, and his video about it had gone viral. Three white teenagers was like all these pristine images and three black teenagers was all these kind of criminalized images of African-American kids. And um, and then that went away. That got kind of tweaked, let's say. And then just a few weeks ago, uh, here, years later, another story went viral around the Internet about when you do a search on four black teenagers... <laughs> You get all these criminalized images. So it's like, well, they fixed three black teenagers, but they didn't fix four black teenagers, right? So, I mean, this is kind of what I'm saying. It's like the logics that undergird how these systems work need attention. And um, I think that the autocomplete was one of the ways that um, search engines, Google in particular, was trying to remedy. One of the things that I really call for in the book is a different set of logics upon which search can be built. Um, you know, I call for public interest search engines, for example. What would it mean if there wasn't an advertising model driving it where those with the most money or those with the most technical skill couldn't optimize content Um you know, what if we had more subject matter experts like the librarians at the table? What if librarians or people with degrees in gender studies and ethnic studies were hired and were made as powerful as software engineers on search teams who asked different questions and worked to kind of mitigate? Um, there's a lot of different ways that it could be done. And, and so, yeah, as the as certain problems get, I think solved or or there are attempts to solve them, new problems arise. The more um, crushing dimension to me of some of this is the way in which disinformation really flourishes in search and in YouTube. Um, you know, I close the book by showing the example 
of the 2016 presidential election um, that in the days following the election, if you did a search on final election results, the very first hit in Google search took you to a disinformation site that reported that Donald Trump had won the popular vote. Of course, we know that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million more votes. So um, as we enter an election season, of course, it's crucial that we understand things like disinformation. I mean, that's certainly different in that we didn't have whole, uh, you know, initiatives and efforts to talk about disinformation. That wasn't even a common, um, you know, keyword, let's say, um, when I was writing the book to the degree that it is today. Uh, now, you know, the bigger picture. So that's at the granular level. I will say that at the, you know, um, more mainstream level, we are in a place which is very different than when I was writing the book, where people are um, uh, suspect of social media and they're suspect of, of big tech and they are much more um, astute, uh, generally speaking about that there there's a there there that we need to be paying attention to, even if they don't know the specifics of like what and how. Now, this is where I would say to people who listen to this podcast who are data scientists, you know, one of the most powerful things that I think Kathy O'Neill does with her work and her book, Math, um, Weapons of Math Destruction, is she's a programmer. And she makes it really clear how machine learning works how data sets are made, how predictive analytics work, and what the implications of that um, can be. And that is something that people who work really close to those models, even as you open the podcast talking about how you're not really sure, um, you know, the black box technology, like what the what the model, like what the algorithm is doing. I think people who work um, with AI are uh, really, really valuable. And um, people can really, I think, think about, you know, collectively what these, what these books mean and what the research means. And there's all kinds of great organizations and all of you doing this amazing work that you're doing. And so I'm now I'm in a position where I'm just trying to learn from the state of the art from you all. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Noble. And thank you, Layla. I know that I am not the only one listening to this thinking that these insights are amazing and inspiring and make me want to have so much more conversations about ethical AI and how we as influencers in the data space can make sure to improve these processes and eradicate any bias that's harmful towards all marginalized groups, the Black community, LGBTQIA community. If you're done listening with this episode and have thoughts to share, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter with the hashtag datafem or link me directly at Data. You can do the same on LinkedIn. I always want to have conversations with you guys to follow up on the content that I'm creating and you're hearing. So also feel free to email me at dikayo at dikayodata.com. I'm so happy to have you as part of my community. And I also want to mention that this week I have 
started an exclusive Slack channel for my patrons, sponsors, and guests. So if you are interested in having more deep discussions with a closer, smaller group than you might find on Twitter, you can go to patreon.com slash datafem and see all the new perks that are available to you. And I would love to have each and every one of you invest in this community that we're building together. I will see you next week.